I feel like the my voice in, informs my horn and my horn informs my voice in some regards. I feel like uh, just singing is a, a natural way to improve uh, ear training and intonation on the horn. You know, it just, when you learn how to sing the pitch, then you, you're truly hearing it where it needs to be. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Jumani Smith. Jumani, well, he's kicking it old school. As the lead trumpet player for Michael Buble, Jumani has toured the world playing in sold-out concert halls and packed stadiums. His playing combines the lyricism of the old masters with some modern-day swagger. Jumani can bring the heat with his horn, or he can make it sweet with his smooth vocals. Because no matter what he does, it's always about the music. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! All right, and uh, welcome to another exciting episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I'm joined by Mr. Jumani Smith. Jumani, pleasure to meet you, man. Hey, it's great to meet you, too. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I, I I guess I have I have uh, seen you live, at least, uh, once with uh, with Michael Buble. Oh, wow. um, didn't, know, didn't know who you were at the time, and I just remember sitting there going, dang, who is that dude? Uh, but, um, yeah, you've, you've had a, for, for a young cat, I mean, you've, you've done some pretty cool stuff in your career. So, um, let's, let's just kind of, I, I think I want, here's where I want to jump in. I want to jump in kind of like at that, the sort of current phase that you're in, um, with, uh, you know, working with, with Michael. Uh, I mean, that's, that's such a, that is such a cool gig to be, uh, playing that kind of music in front of that many people that's that's rare i mean there's a lot of guys that are playing in in big venues you know big stages but you know it's like i interviewed harry kim you know and and dan Fernero, and both of them you know playing you know played all those years with uh phil collins so yeah you expect to be on a huge stage with a with a, an act like phil collins playing that kind of music but with with uh buble you know you're you're playing a lot of jazz standards and playing in front of tens of thousands of people so i mean what's that feeling like it's it's great you know it's it's such an amazing feeling and in some regards it feels like i get to play a small role in like continuing the lineage of this music and the, the style and you know i mean michael he's just an amazing entertainer and i i feel like he could he could literally just like talk to people just him, him and a mic, you know, solo stand up almost and just captivate his entire audience 100%. And so him just having that type of power as an entertainer, it doesn't really matter what style of music he does. And, and, uh, you know, he, a long time ago, he, he said, he said to me, like, you know, if, if like, he loves jazz. I mean, he grew up on the music, his grandfather, got him involved with it and everything. And, 
And uh, he said to me a long time ago, he's like, yeah, well, you know, imagine you have a dog that's sick and it won't take its medicine. So, so you got to put its medicine inside of some food that it'll eat happily in order for it to, to understand. So the medicine being like this music, keeping the, the great American songbook alive and like the tradition and and you know, expanding upon those songs and and all of that, you know. So I, I think it's a great metaphor for his his thing that he does. I mean, he does a ton of different things. He's he's a great artist. I've been with him 17 years now, and it's just been a tremendous ride, you know. Yeah. And not to mention, from a, a trumpet playing standpoint, it's kicked my ass all over the place. I mean, some of those those lead parts are very challenging and to be performing them night after night after night, you know, all in a row, usually we do like, you know, 22, 24 songs a show. And basically 75% of them have some, some heat, some firepower. And, uh, you know, so from a stamina standpoint, it's, it's uh, taught me a lot about endurance and, and uh, you know, just playing efficiently without injuring myself, you know, and, and to the best, playing to the best of my abilities and sensing like what I need to do to get right, you know, every day. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a challenge for me too. It's, it's like, you know, trying to figure out troubleshooting. That's, that's like a lot of it when, when you're out, you know, these runs that we'll do, we'll do like 170, 180 shows in a world tour, you know, over the course of a year and year and a half. So it's like things happen and, you know, sometimes you just got to roll with it. And yeah. uh, so it's, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to figure out where your chops are at for the day and, and whatever that may be, you gotta, you gotta say, all right, well, Maybe I played too loud yesterday, so I need to to start out real soft today. Or or maybe my tongue isn't working as quickly as I want, so maybe I gotta do some hit some extra articulations, or you know what I mean. But all within the balance of preparing and knowing that you only have so much in the tank for the gig at night. So it's like you gotta be careful about making sure you get the rest and. You know, it's it's a whole thing. It's like being a being a professional athlete. You know. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, man. You have have just in that opening little dialogue. There are like so many things I want to ask you about. Now <laughs> you just like opened up the door, dude. So this is this, this is going to be nuts. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, but here's here's the first one I want to talk to you about because I think um, you know stamina, endurance, uh, being because look, man, I've. I play with an events band, you know, corporate band. And um, I, I do have to play a couple couple of Michael's charts. And yeah, you're right. There's some heat in it. And, um, you know, and I only got to play two of them. So I don't have to play a whole book all night long. So <laughs> thank God for that. But, you know, when you're on gigs, uh, you know, particularly when you're playing on a, in a larger venue, you're playing on a larger stage, um, well, I'll just backtrack it. When you're playing in general, one of the biggest problems that we have as trumpet players is the fact that our sound projects forward. And mm -hmm. so we don't really hear ourselves the way other people hear us, which tends to lead to us overblowing. 
So, yes. you know, when you're in a, in a small venue, you know, playing with a, a 10 piece band, uh, that's one thing. When you're playing on a large stage, like an arena show with a larger band, uh, that's got to be a completely different kind of, of situation. So how do you go about making sure that you're playing efficiently, uh, that you can hear yourself properly, and that you know, you're not you're not shooting your wad the first night on a you know on a on a long stretch of gigs. Yeah, well, it's that's really tough, especially as a lead player. There's a certain set of frequencies that you have to deal with, and we use inner monitors. And within those monitors, you know, you're you're constantly fighting uh, for uh, for your sound with with the frequency. You're fighting with the the symbols for the, the sound that I, I hear my intonation best uh, at the high end of my sound, you know, in the real trebly side. That's where I feel like I can lock in the frequencies with the ensemble best. And so I, it, playing lead, you know, a lot of times I feel like I'm fighting with the, the cymbals because I need to hear the, the ride cymbal in jazz, especially. It's not like the type of thing I can just, you know, say, hey, give me, kick drum and snare and I'll be fine, you know, from the from the drums. But for the time, you know, I need hi-hat and ride cymbal. And uh, I, I think there's there's that element. So so you gotta like, you, you have to know something about mixing sound basically in order to get what you need to hear. And then you got your, your own like, uh, uh, inner ear sound that you're getting from playing with the in-ears. So it sounds like you got your fingers in your ear the whole time. So you have to sort of figure out how to finesse that and try to get it to the point where it feels natural. Like you don't want too much of your sound to where you just, you feel like you don't have to play at all, but you don't want too little either where you're like overblowing. And so it's kind of like tricking your mind in a way. And then in addition to that, um, I, a long time ago, I had the pleasure of doing a, a gig with, uh, Harry Kim. It was, uh, it was a Quincy Jones band thing. And, you know, fortunately I was fortunate enough to get hired for it. And Harry was on it and I was like picking his brain. I was like, it was for, uh, Quincy Jones 80th birthday party. Yeah. And, uh, I was picking his brain cause he's like one of my favorites too. You know, it's just like so efficient and, and accurate and just you know great trumpet player and uh he said that he always plays by feel and i was like ah oh, by feel that's that's interesting so as opposed to like listening to your sound like play from the feel side of it and that sort of changed my perspective on things in a lot of ways too because when you start just approaching it from like okay does this how does this feel does this feel comfortable does this feel like it normally would feel regardless of what I'm hearing, then that like presents, that's, that's like different, you know, cause as a, as a, as a trumpet player, we want to like troubleshoot whatever. Okay. I can't hear myself. So now I, the natural thing to do, I just need to play louder. But the, the trade-off is, is that when you play louder than, like you said, you know, your endurance is shot real quick. And, uh, and, the, and in addition to that, you know, tone change, intonation, you know, there's all these other things that are factored in that happen when you're not playing 
where you should be playing naturally with your, within your natural resonance. And so I feel like, you know, playing from a, a, a Phil standpoint is very important and combining that with in a situation like this, where you're playing with the in-ears, trying to mix your sound in a way where you can hear yourself uh, is very important. Like for my mix, I'd like to spread everything out and, uh, you know, only keep a few people down the center uh, that I am, am like trying to lock into. And for, for certain people within the ensemble, I, I have to have them lower or higher based on uh, what my needs are for uh, hearing them, you know? Yeah. So, so if somebody's like listening to what I'm hearing on stage, it's gonna sound completely different to what's being heard out front. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I would love actually, and this just gave me an idea. Um, I wanna do an entire episode that's devoted to uh, the use of, uh, in-ears and stage monitors and, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and uh, I, my friend, uh, Mike Chikowitz, uh, Mike talked about it a little bit in one of the episodes that we did. But, you know, like, for you, having people like you and Harry, uh, I talked to Rashawn Ross a little bit about it, but yeah. people that are, that are doing, like, the bigger venues and, yeah. as well as people doing smaller venues to talk about how, how to approach hearing yourself on stage, you know, whether it be in-ear or wedges. Mike gave some really good tips about uh, which frequencies to tell your your sound tech to, you know, it's like, okay, you know, I, I need a cut here, I need a boost here, sort yeah. of thing. Um, but I think that's really important, especially because more and more of us are doing gigs where you're either relying on stage wedges or, you know, if you're lucky enough to have, to have a set of in-ears, uh, but you still need to know how to get the most out of them. You can't just Absolutely. expect to solve the problem. So. It's taken me a lot of time to, to understand that I don't have to try to fill up each room with my natural sound too. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's something that, that takes, it's like a, it's like a mind trick almost, or, or, a, you, you know what I mean? You have yeah, to yeah, yeah. trick your yeah. subconscious to not thinking, okay, it's a big space. So, you know, I have to be bigger. I have to be louder. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, and, and you and you do. I mean, you're switching around because I mean, you, you're playing. Uh, you know, thank God, you know, uh, Michael's back out on the road, so that's that's great. Uh, but you're also doing like your small band stuff. Yeah. You know? So you know, you're going from these big hundred thousand seat auditoriums to, you know, a smaller intimate club, or maybe you're doing an outdoor, you know, kind of uh, festival. Uh, I know you got a couple of dates coming up during the yeah. summer with that. So yeah. you, you've got to switch gears mm -hmm. mentally because the sound requirements in each of those is going to be a little bit different. And if you're always trying to like fill up the room, you're, you're, in, a, you're in a world of hurt <laughs> when you roll into that big stadium. Yeah, yeah. I, that's why I feel like playing from Phil is, is really important. Yeah, Harry, he hooked me up with that tip for sure. Uh, Harry, man, he, he's a wealth of knowledge, you know. Yeah. He's, he's such a good dude too. So, uh, in uh, speaking of old school, uh, I didn't call you old Harry. Uh, just, just you know, <laughs> but but you are old. Uh, but in, um, you were in that mile shirt, and uh, yeah, you know, 
and uh, you know, recently I ran across oh, on your uh, on your social media stuff, uh, you know, some transcriptions. You know, you did some Clifford and some uh, uh, some Lee, and and uh, you know, all the old old timers, the you know, the old guard. So, you know, it, it's it's very important for us to to never lose sight of our traditions, you know, and and to to hold on to that and and take that as as our new you know our new base and then build on it so um this is kind of like a two-part kind of discussion i guess is like first is like who are some of the the people that have influenced you the most as a trumpet player and then number two is what are you kind of trying to take from that and what are you you know what are you trying to add on to it yeah, some of some of my biggest influences are well, Miles. I, I love Miles's playing. Freddie Hubbard, Louis Armstrong, Clifford Brown. You know all the great jazz artists. Nat Adderley, uh, Dizzy Gillespie. You know all of that stuff. That's that that's some of my favorite stuff. And then lead players like like Jerry Hay and Snooky Young. Those are probably my top two. Wayne Bergeron's great too. You know, and uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, taking from them, I, I feel like I feel like there's there's so much that I've learned just from listening to them and transcribing them and trying to emulate them in their style and you know it's yeah it's an amazing amazing lineage to to try to uh, uh, absorb and and hopefully be a small part of in some regard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that you've definitely gotten into the the vocal aspect of of uh, music as well, yeah. and uh, you know how how has that impacted your approach to playing? Oh, it's it's been really great, actually. Um, I feel like it's added an element of lyricism to my trumpet playing uh, that's really good. I feel like the my voice in, informs my horn, and my horn informs my voice. In some regards, I feel like uh, just singing is a, a natural way to improve uh, ear training and intonation on the horn. You know, it just when you learn how to sing the pitch, then you you're truly hearing it where it needs to be. So that tone uh, and just trying to play with an approach that is very melodic and like a like a vocalist would almost you know it's a yeah it's 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 been a it's been a tremendous addition to my repertoire yeah yeah well um you know peter bond um yeah i, I had him on the show uh, not too long ago uh, and you know, for those of you who don't know, Peter Peters, a uh, former uh, player in the the Metropolitan uh, Opera Orchestra, and uh, he wrote a book called *The Singing Trumpet*. And that's his that is like the foundation of his pedagogical approach. Is you know, don't think about blowing the horn, think about singing. You know, and you know that that's that that the singing and talking is that is the working model of how we play because so many of us are trying to do all these weird things to to get the sound out as opposed to just singing through the horn um and think back to the subconscious level yeah yeah and you know when people talk you know talk about the different like hearing the pitch before you play it it's it's so funny because if if um if you're thinking about if like i'm thinking about okay i i gotta play this i gotta hit this high a 
and I'm thinking about the pitch, but still, because I'm thinking about the high A, I start tensing up, you know, and start going through all these little mind games that we go through, you know, as players, as opposed to if you're just going to sing the note, especially if you're just going to sing it like in the shower when nobody's around, you're going to hear the pitch and it's, it's going to have a much better chance of, of coming out. So yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that, that model. Now for you though, what I find kind of, you know, really interesting is, is, uh, you know, you, you've stumbled onto this, which I think is a, is a really great approach, but also you, you're in that interesting position where you are working regularly with a phenomenal vocalist mm-hmm. in Michael, and you spent, you know, you spent a few years uh, working with uh, Harry Connick on Harry's show. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one of the, the, you know, in terms of male vocalists, uh, you know, one, one of the great of our times. Um, so, or there any things that you picked up from working with, with either of these guys or any of the other great players, uh, you know, singers that you've worked with in your career that has informed your approach to, to vocals that has then further influenced your approach to trumpet? Oh, absolutely. You know, i I'm always studying, watching what they do and, and how they approach music and, you know, it's, it's, uh. Yeah, they've they've definitely uh, influenced me tremendously. Just watching them and uh, trying to emulate and take from things that I hear them do and and learn from them and how they, you know, develop their their vocal or or you know create peaks and valleys through a set and through a song, you know, within their their vocal ranges and everything and or to to. Years ago, I got to do uh, uh, the Grammys with Stevie Wonder, and we had like all this rehearsal time scheduled, and we got through we got through the song that we were doing really quickly, and he just wanted to jam and stuff, and so then he would just spend time playing jazz standards and and singing along to the the lines that he was playing, and I was like, whoa, that's that's crazy. It's like I'm I'm sitting here in the band watching Stevie Wonder practice, you know? Like there's so much to be learned just from being around people like that, you know, and it's it's extraordinary. I'm I'm really grateful for the experiences that I've had. Yeah. yeah I mean Stevie's man, Stevie's Stevie's on a whole different level from from anybody, I think. I mean that that man has so much talent. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it I guess because I'm I'm older, you know, I you know, I was born in the very early 60s. Uh so I I kind of got to experience Stevie's career arc. And a lot of people nowadays, you know, they really don't appreciate fully uh the impact he has had on on music. I mean, not just, you know, R&B, but uh but all genres of music. I mean, the the guy is just one of a kind. Absolutely, his songwriting was incredible. Yeah. I mean, oh man. Yeah, he's he's like one of my you know if I'm if I what's what do they say if you get uh, uh stuck on a, a desert island deserted island? Yeah. I mean you know a Stevie Wonder CD it would be a must. <laughs> give, give me talking book any day of the week, oh, man. man. Yeah. That, that's just a that's some serious stuff. I mean the the writing the playing everything on it you know yeah. so I'm, I'm all about mine, that mine is uh inner visions yeah uh, yeah i mean you know, that's right around the same time you know yep. 
yeah, 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 that's that's the stuff right there. Um, now you know, wearing the Miles shirt, you know, Miles, uh, you know, Miles was opinionated. You know, Miles, Miles, Miles had his had his his approach to things, and and he was he's very clear cut, and he he got he caught a lot of flack from people because of uh his approach a lot of times i mean um particularly in in relationship to uh the type of music that he played and uh you know so there are a lot of jazz purists out there and you know the minute you and i feel like it's almost like the minute you become commercially successful then you're then you're no longer a true jazz musician Mm -hmm. that's the way a lot of people feel i mean i don't feel that way but it's like, oh man, you know, if, if you're selling out arenas, then you're you're then you're you're not a real jazz guy. So you know, you you got nothing to say. But I, mean, I can't so, call it commercial success at all. I think I think it's uh, if you're lucky enough to have that happen, man, more power to you. I, I mean, <laughs> but I mean, how do you ever get any pushback from people? You know about you know. The, the fact that you're doing so much commercial work or, or that you're having, you're enjoying commercial success and the stuff that, that you're a part of, uh, as opposed to, you know, you know, you should just be, you know, playing, you know, avant-garde jazz in a, a basement somewhere for three people. <laughs> oh man. Well, no, I, I wouldn't say that I really do, but then again, you know, if there is that out there, they're probably not saying it to my face. Uh, but in addition to that, I, I actually, I used to play a lot of free jazz too. Many years ago, I was a part of Rashid Ali's band and he was like a, a father to me. Rashid Ali, if you're not familiar with him, he was the last drummer in John Coltrane's band. Mm-hmm. And, and so he, he was like a father to me. We used to play a lot of avant-garde jazz and, uh, you know, it's, it was an amazing experience. Um, yeah, but as far as pushback, I, I mean, yeah, there's always going to be people who appreciate what you do and people who don't care for what you do. I mean, that's, 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 that's why Baskin and Robbins has 31 flavors, you know, cause not everybody likes the same type of ice cream. So yeah, it's just, it is what it is. If if you're lucky enough to have haters, then you're you're probably doing something right. If you know if if people are paying that much attention to you, I I, I don't know. It's I don't know. I yeah. mean, I, I mean, I'm with you on that, man. You know, it's like if if, if nobody is is paying attention to you, then you you know you're not going to get any flack from anybody. But you know, as soon as you start doing something to to push the envelope, you know, or just to make a contribution. Yeah, somebody's gonna ego's gonna get bruised through it, and unfortunately, that's what the way we tend to react. You know, especially on social media, it's like you know. I also feel like uh, the people who are innovators are the ones that push the the envelope too. You know, and they're the ones that are able to venture outside of the box. And and you know, a lot of times, especially in jazz, people people who are now after they've died seemingly uh, known as the greatest innovators of their time and, you know, their legacy lives on. A lot of those people, from my understanding, weren't as beloved in their lifetime. I mean, some of them were, 
And some of them were cast as like outsiders too. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I guess it's just the, uh, a part of the, the thing, you know, if, if you wanna be an innovative artist in some capacity, you know, not everybody's gonna love what you're doing, most likely. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So, you know, with with your career um, you, so far, I mean, you, you, you've done that gamut, man. You know, like yourself, you know, you've done free jazz, you've done commercial stuff, you know, TV, stage, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, you, you're a side man, you're a band leader. So, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. So right now, uh, what's your favorite kind of venue to be in? Are, are you, do you prefer being on those huge stages? Do you prefer being in an intimate setting? Do you prefer, you know, the studio? Man, it's it's hard. It's like I I love doing all of them. I I really enjoy doing the big stages with Michael too, and it, it's like that's incredible. That's an incredible feeling. You know, you got thousands of people yelling and screaming, and the energy and the you know the pressure's high and everything. It's a it's a great feeling. Everything though. I mean, I I love doing TV. I love doing recording. I love doing my own thing. It's you know, it's a, in a lot of ways, it's a dream come true to be able to dip my toes in these in a variety of different waters and hopefully still be true to myself, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, I've had this conversation with a number of people recently uh, that no matter, um, if you look at any gig and think about this as like the dream gig, there's always somebody who's got that gig that hates it. You know, it's like if you th if you think that you want to be uh you know the the principal of of a major orchestra, there's some guy sitting in that principal chair going, oh, I can't wait to get out of this, or you know, somebody in the studio that feels that way. Um, but you know, I th I think that it's so important to appreciate the the process and appreciate the opportunities that we have because, man, if you get to even if you're not playing full time, if you're just, if you're going out and you're playing music, that should be something fun. That should be something that, that fills you with joy. If somebody wants to actually hear you blow air through that piece of tubing or mm -hmm. sing through it, as Peter would say, uh, then um, that is something to be grateful for. And I think a lot of times we lose sight of that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's the way I feel about it too. Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I feel really fortunate for the career that I've had, you know, so. Yeah. Well, you know. It, it, it's easy to, to lose sight of definitely, you know, there's times when, when it's hard to, to remind yourself that, uh, you know, this is, this is your dream come true, or this is, you know, music is feeding your soul, but I mean, all we can do is try to associate ourselves 
with those types of environments that truly connect with us and uh, try to dis disassociate ourselves with the ones that don't connect with us as well. And, you know, there's, uh, I agree, you know, there's a lot of people, there's people uh, who, who might not be happy with the, whatever gig it is they're doing or whatever job it is that they have. And, you know, maybe as good as it is, maybe it's just not for them anymore. Maybe, maybe they should be moving on to something else, you know, and maybe they would be happier doing that. Yeah. And, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to, to have a career. There's a lot of ways to make money uh, in music and outside of music. Maybe there's something else within music that they would gravitate more towards or, you know, maybe thinking of, of that being what their music career is and all that like the pinnacle of what their music career would be, um, you know, maybe they would have more of a realization that, you know, they got a good thing going and there's no need to not be grateful for what they have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that gratitude is a big thing, man. It's a big thing in my book, you know, that uh, uh, every opportunity you have, you know, it may not be the one that you want, but it's the one you got. So you can, you can either try to make the best of it or you can complain about it. So I just always try to figure out a way to make the best of it. You know, and then if I'm not happy with it, then I try to figure out how to make what I want to have happen, happen, you know, going forward. So, yeah. Um, so I think, I think a, a beautiful thing about where we're at at this current moment in time is if you're playing music, then most likely nobody's forcing you to do it, you know? So. That, yeah, that's, that's true. You know, and that if is. You don't really want to be there. Then maybe, maybe you shouldn't be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing. I think sometimes we're, we're, we're afraid to reinvent ourselves. And that's one of the things I, I did always love about miles as, you know, from a musician standpoint, uh, is he was not afraid to uh, reinvent his approach to music. I mean, it still was Miles. It was Miles from, you know, well, I don't want to say it was Miles when, when he first kind of broke on the scene because Miles was, was basically being, you know, a clone of Dizzy back, you know, when he first started. But when Miles found his voice, yeah. you know, it was... Yeah, you know, whether whether it was his cool or whether it was his electronic or whether it was you know the you know, the latter stages of his career, when he felt the need to make a move, he made a move. Mm -hmm. And I think so many of us are afraid because our lives do change. Mm -hmm. um, and when things change, we still want to hold on to the old stuff. And sometimes the old stuff doesn't serve us anymore. You know, yeah. but change is tough. You know, change is change is hard. It's it's hard to come to terms with. Uh, uh, changing environment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think I, it's like I feel like that that the change change isn't hard in and of itself. I mean, because stuff is always changing. You don't have to do anything, and, and things change. The hard part is is our ability to reconcile ourselves with that change. And uh, you know, it's like you know, sailing. You know, are you going to go with? Are you going to go with the wind? Or are you going to go try and go against it? 
So, you know, but so like as, as a, as a player, I mean, you know, like you're doing, so if we, if we take Michael's, you know, gig as the example, um, you know, you're, you're playing lead that's your, that's your, that's your book. Uh, but you also, you know, have to blow some, blow some solos and things like that. Then you have like your, your smaller things that you're doing and, and, you know, you're doing more, uh, more of the jazz stuff and the vocalist, the vocal things. And then, like you say, you're doing, you did free jazz, stuff like that. So you've had all these different kind of hats. Um, when did you kind of lock into the lead side of your playing? Uh, that was pretty early on that I started playing lead, uh, maybe around well, as, as long as I can remember. I was, I was the guy playing the high notes. And then uh, I started working on it and developing it more in high school and in college, you know, when I was in my teens and 20s. And, and then I saw it as an open opportunity because there wasn't a lot of other people doing that type of thing in my environment. So I saw it as a window of opportunity between uh, the amount of ability, natural ability that I had to play in the upper register versus some of my peers at that moment. Um, so yeah, I, I, I saw it as a, as a chance to, to maybe find a, a, a niche for myself, a window of opportunity there. And I, I sort of ran with it and developed a real passion for doing it. Um, but I, I don't think of myself as solely a lead player, though. Um, you know, for me, I, I love playing jazz and, and improvising and, you know, learning songs and doing all kinds of other stuff, too. So I, I wouldn't say that, that that's the only thing that I'm interested in doing as far as a trumpet player. Um, but it's definitely something that has served me well to be able to do. And I, I do my best to, to practice every day and practice things uh, geared towards uh, improving my abilities in that regard, as well as in others. Yeah. I mean, I, there are, there are certainly a, a lot of lead players, a lot, a lot of, you know, names that you could, that you could pop off. But um, two of, two of my favorite lead players of all time, actually three, because uh, uh, I actually mentioned all three of them, uh, Snooky, uh, Jerry Hay, and, and Wayne. Um, all three, the one thing that, that I, I love about them all is that I can listen to them just play scream and lead, and then I can listen to them play a solo, especially like Jerry and Jerry and Wayne both, uh, their flugel solos are just they're butter. And you know, and give Snooky a, a plunger mute, you know, and you know, he's he's gonna make you cry. And I think that that having that uh the improv the the mindset of the improviser uh in terms of uh phrasing uh structure uh harmonic concepts and things like that with the chops to play a lead book i think you get a really unique player in that case because it's not just 
you know, power lead, it's super musical. And not that there are the other players aren't, you know, there, there are tons of, of lead players that I love and respect. Uh, but those three, just because you brought up those names, those are three people that I do uh, admire a lot. And yeah, I never got a chance to meet Snooki, but I, you know, have Jerry and, and Wayne and they were all influential on me. And now that I'm a little older and understand a lot of it has to do with, with their melodic approach to playing the lead charts. So, um, yeah. you know, how do you feel that those things have, have influenced you in, in your, your lead playing? No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, I think that's a very important aspect in, uh, in, and it helps you be more musical and more musically informed, uh, just having that wealth of knowledge. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it, you're, you nailed it. It's, it, I, I feel like it's extremely important. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to share the stage with Snooky a few times and, uh, he, he wasn't playing lead at the time, but, um, it was just great to be in his presence and, and to get to rap to him a bit. And, you know, he said the same thing to me. He said, you know, being a, being a soloist is like the thing that that's really, you know, helped him find his voice as a lead player and to help help him be that musical so yeah well there's that's a little tip for uh, uh you up and coming uh lead players you know definitely don't don't shy away from from learning more about being a, a soloist because that's that's not going to help you in the end mm -hmm. um so like from uh, from your your perspective of like the the current state of of jazz um you know where where do you kind of see things heading um i think there's a shift happening right now uh it's more of like a split between the traditionalists and uh, the progressive side contemporary side of things and i think a lot of it is centered around the the rhythm section groove, the drums and the, you know, I think that nowadays most people don't grow up listening to traditional jazz and it's not something that we would hear on, on the radio as much. Uh, and so young people aren't as familiar with the jazz beat uh, or the traditional sort of swing beat. And, uh, so I think that there's been a, a shift in that regard. A lot of people are, are playing more funk and R&B, church, modern church style rhythm section approach to, uh, you know, to playing in jazz and it's working. People are connecting with younger audiences in that way. So I think I, I see that continuing to progress. Um, it's hard too. like, I, I still think that there's room for growth in the traditional side of things with the, you know, more traditional beat and everything. But I, I also feel like this music is, is about progression and pushing the boundaries and change and being a part of uh, whatever, uh, 
time that you're in, whatever, uh, you know, whether it be like, you know, the, the 30s or the 40s or the, you know, 2000s or whatever, you know, you gotta, you gotta have some association in your music of, of uh, being relevant to that period of time. And so it's, it's hard for me to see, I, I don't know, it, it's, it's interesting because I, I feel like nowadays there's also like people that are just like swinging like crazy. There's some incredible young musicians, younger musicians coming up and, you know, great artists that are doing that. Um, and some of them are having some success, but I think a lot of it is is uh, the the majority of what audiences are following right now is uh, is is outside of that swing realm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I, I guess the the best way to and it's, I'm not saying this personally, but I'm just saying it feels like uh, many people feel that that swing is is dated you know that that when you when you hear a swing rhythm that it that that it's kind of a dated dated uh rhythm and a dated sound um i don't feel that way i love swing uh but i think like you're saying you know that uh when people aren't when they aren't steeped in that vocabulary when it's not part of who they are at that very basic level then it's I'll, I'll mix metaphors here. It's hard to fake the funk, you know. It, it's like, you know, if you if you haven't really been uh, immersed in that that sound, to try and reproduce it is, um, you know, it sounds it sounds forced, you oh, know. Yeah, absolutely. That as well, you know. If uh, it, it's it's always strange to me when people try to to do swing and and they're they they're not, you know well-versed in the art form i mean it's so obvious from the get-go yeah yeah i mean so like you're saying you know, the the modern rhythms i mean if that's if that's the rhythm that's kind of in your head and in your body then that seems to be the the best way to at least it's like your gateway into the the world of jazz you know it's like okay i've got this rhythm and i've got this freedom so now i can start expressing it and then hopefully then, you know, start to go back and to, to listen to, uh, you know, the, the generations before and, 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 and pick up what they, they had done and see how it all fits together. Uh, yeah, I think that's where you can really develop this, this breadth and depth of understanding of what jazz is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But I mean, it's even like, you know, going back or we talk about, you know, uh, talking and speak or singing and things like that and how influential you're playing. Um, even if you look at the differences in uh, the way we talk. So like if you go back and you watch some, some videos of uh, some movies of uh, some of the older jazz cats, or you know, like you're talking about hanging out with Snooki and people like that. And there was a rhythm to the way they talked. And that rhythm to the way they talk was very similar to the feeling of swing. Mm. You know, kind of like, yeah, man, you know, you know, you kind of get that that kind of that that rhythmic vibe as opposed to now. So if you take like hip hop and kind of the the way that that 
our vernacular has changed, uh, particularly in the, the urban communities. You know, it's, it's a little bit more, you know, this kind of, you know, almost like machine gun uh, kind of vibe that goes on. So then that, that tends to, that's going to be what you hear. And that's, that's the way you're thinking. That's the way you're talking. So it only makes sense as what's going to come out of your horn. Mm. That's an interesting observation. Yeah. I've never really thought about it that way, but yes, that, that makes sense as well. Uh, yeah. I feel like so much of it is environmental and, and uh, what you're, what you're hearing on the streets, what you're hearing on the radio, what you're, what you grow up listening to, what your parents grow up listening to, you know, that's, that influences uh, your ears and how open your ears are to different styles of music and different sounds and things. Yeah. And, and yeah, you were you know, talking about like your, your experiences, you know, having to, you know, getting to work with, with, uh, you know, people like, like Michael and Harry, uh, but you also got a chance to work with, you know, probably, one of the greatest trumpet players, the most influential trumpet players of our of our generation, which is Winton. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what what kind of uh, what kind of impact did, did he make on you? Like, you know, maybe what like what's like the one or two big things that you can look at and go, yeah, this this was definitely you know a Winton influence. Oh well, Winton, he's he's another person that I I admire him so much, and you know, I consider him to be a friend and. And man, he's, he's, he's almost like fatherly to me as well, in some regard, you know, like he's always looked out for me. And he told me when I was 18, I, I was fortunate enough, our high school jazz band got into the Essentially Ellington Festival, which is like one of the big jazz festivals in New York. And it was my first time going to New York. And when I got there, I met Winton and he told me, he said, oh, yeah, I heard your recording and you can play, you know, you should, you should move to New York, you should move to New York. And I was 18 and I was thinking like, man, this is like crazy. Winton's telling me I should move to New York. I got to try to do it. You know, I got to, got to try to make it happen. And, and, uh, you know, it just opened up my world of possibilities it, and it opened up doors for me. Like, oh, is that something that I, I could actually be worthy of? trying to make my dreams come true. Is that something that I should try to do? And uh, so, you know, that was, there was that influence. And then when I was in college, he was my private teacher as well. And just, oh, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience to, to get to learn from him and, and to have him share with me uh, some of his tech, technical approaches to the horn and, and just about music and about life and all of that type of stuff. And, you know, I, I'm just grateful that he took the time to, to, to help me out and to, you know, help me find my space, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, Winton, like I said, it is definitely one of the most influential players of, of you know, the past century in, in my book, uh, because he, he really, he's one of those guys that could really do it all, you know, and not just kinda, but, you know, he, he will, he will eat it up and, uh, his just, just listening to him play the, um, yeah. And a lot of people, 
I've, I've heard people say they don't like Winton because he's too clean. Oh, well, come on. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, there's, there's really no soul to what he does. I'm like, really? Are you really listening? Uh, but it's because he, he's got such tremendous technical facility. Absolutely. To me, he's one of the greatest of all time. And he's definitely one of my favorites, uh, you know, and to have the opportunity to be around him has just been tremendous. His technical, he's just so, his level of virtuosity is just incredible. But, you know, it's not like, it's not an accident. He put in the work, you know, he, he put in that time and he spent those out when every, all the other kids were out, you know, hanging out and doing whatever, you know, messing around, hanging with their friends. He was in the room studying and, you know, so by the time he hit the scene, he was miles beyond what his peers were. And, and I also think that the influence of him being second generation professional musician in his family, that had to, to, to be a factor as well. You know, he had his, his, his brothers were playing too. His brothers were became, becoming professional musicians and, and his father, you know, he knew what it took to really be extraordinary. And he knew where to find the right things for his kids to practice, you know? And, and he, he put in the time and had the work ethic to make it happen. And, you know, he, he's still continuing to put in the time and work hard, you know? He's, he's doing, now with his, his Jazz at Lincoln Center company. And I mean, he's just, the amount of things that he's done is just tremendous. And his outreach, his educational outreach, it's, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. But I, I think it, the one thing you touched on there that I think is really important, and I, and I just want to get, kind of get your feedback on it, is, you know, like you're saying that, that Winton, when, when his peers were out partying, hanging, you know, doing whatever, you know, he's, he's shedding. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, there's a, there's a payoff. There's a trade-off, I should say. There's a trade-off if you want the payoff. And you, know, you got to pay the price, and the, and the price is in the practice. Uh, now, granted, Winton, Winton had a lot of things going on in his favor. Uh, you know, he uh, his, his, like you say, his dad, you know, professional musician, his family, you know, all of the musically talented in New Orleans, which, you know, is a hotbed of, of, of jazz. Um, but there are a lot of other people that were in that same or a very similar environment that didn't become Winton, mm -hmm. you know, but he just, he, he took what was around him and he made it work for him. Mm -hmm. So, uh, now you came from a different, different environment and you're, you know, you're, you're building your career. Um, you know, so when you were younger, how did you manage to develop those skills that, that, that help you to become, uh, noticed by someone like Winton? And if you're going to give a recommendation to an up and coming you know, young player of, you know, what they will probably need to do to attain uh, a similar level of proficiency, what would you suggest that they, they do and, and kind of the mindset that you need to have to do that? I feel like you got to be self-disciplined and you got to work hard, find a great teacher, find the, the best 
musicians in whatever area that you're in, find those people, ask them who are the best teachers or where they got their knowledge from. And, you know, it might just be that they're great teachers as well, but they might've had a great teacher uh, that's local to your environment and just put in the work, listen to what they have to say and work hard and put in those hours because it takes a lot of hours. It takes a tremendous amount of hours. Uh, when I was young, there was a, a long stretch of time, years where I was practicing six, seven, eight hours a day, just working on my craft. And, you know, that was, that was necessary for me at the time. Now, do I know if I was practicing efficiently or not? Yes, I do know that I wasn't practicing as efficiently as I should have been because I, at that point, I didn't have uh, as many mentors that were trumpet specific as I probably could have gotten just from uh, going out and um, you know finding those people in that environment. Um, but I, I was I was sort of on my own, you know, on my own thing at that point. I, I mean, I had some teachers. I had some teachers when I was growing up that showed me some stuff, but I was sort of like, you know, I, I just wanted to, to go in on my own more. And so I was trying a bunch of different stuff and, you know, through trial and error, that got me somewhere. But if I, I feel like if I had really found that teacher and listened to what they had to say that I probably could have uh, grew a lot more efficiency, efficiently than uh, what I was doing. But at the same time, I feel like it is important as an artist or as an aspiring artist to find your own voice and find your own sound. So a lot of it is trial and error and, and you know, finding what works for you and who you are, what's, what defines you musically and artistically. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, do you have any aspirations of being, you know, like doing more in terms of education? Yeah. You know, I do. I, 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 I like teaching when, when the student is inspired and is working hard, you know, and, and is really working at it. Then teaching's great. When it's just like babysitting and, you know, they don't really want to be there. I don't want to waste my time on it either, you know. So. Word. <laughs> completely. So let, let me ask you, Amy, because we, you know, I know that, that uh, you know, just because of the level of success that you've had, I mean, this, this is our, you know, getting to know each other, but still, I can already, I can already read this. Uh, you know, you are a lifelong learner. I know that, that if, if we had the same conversation or had another conversation in 20 years, uh, you'd be talking about, you know, your practice schedule and, you know, what you're working on and things like that. So I, yeah, <laughs> I know that you're always looking to improve yourself and that you probably feel like there, you know, every aspect of your playing, there's always room for improvement. I, I'm going to, I'm going to take that as an assumption that, but, but we always do have some things that are much easier and enjoyable in the process and some things that are a little harder and less enjoyable in the process. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your playing, what aspects have been like the easiest for you and that you don't really have to work on that much 
to to maintain a level or to you know to start making some improvement and which areas are just like dude i just got to keep pounding this crap because <laughs> you know I, I still am not where i want to be you know it's it's really hard to to say i mean early on i definitely was able to play high notes quicker than some of my peers. Uh, now, whether I was doing it right or not, that's another story, or efficiently. Um, but, you know, to this day, I, I still feel like it's something that I need to work on and address. Uh, but I, I feel like it's also very important to uh, make sure to focus on those things that might not be quite as strong as the things that are stronger in every aspect of your technique, and you know, I think I think it's uh, it's important. Yeah. How do you structure your your practice? Uh, ideally, on a on a most ideal way, I would like to practice for three hours in a day, and do like. Uh, hour increments, one in the earlier part of the day, one in the middle part of the day, and then one later in the day, if it's just a practice day, you know, and uh, do a variety of different things within those uh, practice windows, like in the morning, uh, start with some flexibilities and long tones and things like that. And in the afternoon, maybe I'll do some velocity work and some tonguing and then in the evening, work on some creative aspect, you know, like improvising and uh, new music that I'm learning or something like that. I mean, that's that's ideal. Uh, but a lot of times life gets in the way of that. And, uh, you know, you have to you have to uh, plan accordingly or make adjustments. So, um you know, sometimes it'll be that I I only have an hour within the day, and I just try to hit as many different aspects of that as I can. You know, I'm approaching technique, endurance, uh, tonguing, tone production. You know, big picture stuff. Yeah. Uh, velocity, flexibility. You know, breath control. All of all of those types of things. And uh, just trying to do exercises that are geared towards improving upon that. Yeah, man, it's like, you know, you didn't have to work, you know, <laughs> it would be a lot easier. Yeah. Right, regardless, you know, because uh, yeah, you, you have got to, uh, you know, your work and, you know, somebody else's work will be completely different. You know, if you're a dentist and you're, you know, playing trumpet on the weekends and, you know, you've got to do your, do your eight, eight hours you know, Monday through Friday and then play on the weekends. But, you know, if you're a touring musician like yourself, I mean, you're going to have days where, you know, you've got, you've got a heavy hit that night and you're on the road, you're on the bus or on the plane uh, and you don't have time to get into that solid routine. So I think it's really important to, to start to, to, uh, to kind of have that, that dual approach. Like, you know, it's like if I've got all day to practice, here's, here's how I'm going to approach it. And then if I don't have any time, this is, you know, this is my essentials. And, you know, and that's why I like talking to guys like you about that, because you've had to, you've had to find something that's workable to, to not only maintain, but to, you know, kind of keep your, your level 
going up and doing it in a minimal amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said from efficient practice and consistency, you know, because sometimes even if all you have is 20 minutes, it'll make a difference in the long run. You know, say if you're, you're one of those people who uh, has a day job and then you have gigs on the weekend, but, you know, your days are just jammed. I, I mean, you're going to be better off uh, spending 20 minutes a day. In my opinion, you'd be better off spending those 20 minutes a day to warm up and do those things to make the horn feel normal to you. Uh, and, and then you would be to wait, you know, three or four days and then put in an hour and then do the gigs at the weekend. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It's, it's, but a lot of it has to do with finding what works for you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, the word that you, that you use, you have used quite a bit today, I think is the important thing is the efficiency, you know, because you can, you can practice 20 minutes. And I've talked to a lot of people, you know, that are, you know, high caliber players saying, you know, what they, they, what they can accomplish in a 20 minute period compared to what the average person accomplishes in a, a two hour period, because it's a super focused, it's super intentional. And, you know, it's, it's well thought out of like, okay, if I do this, then I'm, I'm, a, I'm addressing my, I'm doing my long tones. I'm doing my, my, getting my fingers going. I'm doing this and doing this and everything is just kind of condensed and concentrated but it's done in a way that when you get done, you have hit it all and you're able to, to do it with hundred percent focus, as opposed to a lot of times when we have more time then our mind starts to wander and, you know, we get off track and things like that. And you still only spend like 10 minutes practicing, like really practicing, even though you had to horn your hands for, you know, two hours. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, a, it's really important to also be aware like self-aware of where you are on the horn and, and being able to troubleshoot through those things. Once you get to a, a level uh, that you feel comfortable uh, to be able to troubleshoot, well, hey, maybe today my tongue isn't moving as fast, so I should spend what little time I have focusing on that and prioritizing things uh, that help you to maintain that level of consistency and also prioritizing things that are important for whatever job you might, you might have coming up. Yeah. Well, you heard it here folks. So, uh, work on, work on your home practice routines. And, uh, if you got a really good one, share it with us, you know, I'm always looking for some good stuff here. So uh, anyway, all right. So uh, we've got a couple of regular segments that I need to get through um, on this episode before I can I can let you go. And it's, this has been great, man. I, I could certainly talk to you uh, a lot more about some of these concepts. And, and if I do get that episode together about, uh, you know, stage monitoring and things like that, I'm definitely calling you up for that one because I think that you'd be a great, great person to have on for that. Would love to. It's such a unique environment doing that with Michael because, like I said, you know, we're up there playing jazz and it's it's a different thing trying to hear this the sound of jazz versus uh, something where you can focus on like the kick drum and the snare drum at the time. So it's yeah, 
Oh yeah, yeah. It, it, that's different, different ball game. All right. Well, here we go with our first segment. Our first segment is called Sound Off, and uh, it's brought to us by Bark Michael Barkley and Barkley Microphones, and um, it's about your approach to sound. And um, let's just kind of keep with with that idea of uh, you know the the dichotomy that you have in your career of large spaces and smaller spaces. Uh, you know, playing lead, playing jazz. Um, you know, how do you go about your approach to sound uh, and the adjustments that you need to make in each of those those venues and, you know, ways people can think about maybe, uh, you know, being able to adjust their sound depending on their, their environments? Are you speaking about, like, tone or are you talking about... Yeah, yeah tone and, and just the, the sound production process. Yeah, okay. Well... Yeah, I think that there's there's different ways to approach getting overtones to ring, uh, and in different environments you want you want like if you're playing lead you want a lot of overtones in your sound you want it to be bright and brassy, but maybe not overly bright. You know, there's like a certain sweet spot where like it's cutting through and you can hear it, but it's not making the people in the audience be like. You know, um, and I think that a lot can can uh, be found in doing long tones from soft to loud and back uh, to soft uh, throughout the range of the horn and trying to focus on filling those uh, those different uh, uh, tone possibilities and frequencies and feeling, hearing those, those, uh, those frequencies come out. Um, you know, for me personally, I, I generally like to play the same setup for whatever it is I'm playing. Um, but I, I mean, occasionally I'll, I'll switch off of it to, to do something else if it's, but, but generally speaking, I like to just have one setup and then try to manipulate things uh, within my embouchure and my tongue level and everything to change the actual tone. Uh, and so that's that's sort of how I go about it. I think long tones are really important. I think, uh, you know, if I'm gonna be playing a lot of jazz and I wanna have a, a warmer sound, then I'm gonna do a lot of real soft long tones and try to uh, get the most, the, the biggest vibration of of tone at the lowest volume that I can. I find that that tends to warm up the sound. And then, uh, you know, if I want to have a lot of overtones in my sound, then I focus on doing those uh, sort of stretching long tones where, where you're uh, uh, developing the dynamic from uh, very quiet to, to very loud and back while trying to maintain the consistency of pitch and the fill down the center. And, uh, you know, for lead, I think it's, it's important to, to find your resonance, um, to find your, your resonance down the center of the horn and getting those slots to really lock in. Uh, because when, when you focus on feeling the slots and finding the center of the horn, uh, to me, it's much easier to get the, uh, the overtones to ring properly. All right. 
cool. I like it. All right. Uh, our next segment is uh, called Geared Up, and this is about gear, of course. Uh, it's brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces. Venture, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code a Trumpet Gurus twenty one to get ten percent off. Uh, so, as we talk about gear, uh, this is not necessarily you know what you play, but why you kind of play what you do. You know why why you've made some of your equipment choices, and uh, particularly uh, thinking for somebody that's listening and, and uh, maybe considering needing to change their gear, what are some of the concepts you use to, in choosing the gear and uh, how that might help them in their search? Well, I feel like, like finding high quality gear uh, that makes your job easier is really important. Um, and there's different things that are better for certain aspects of playing than others. Um, and and I, I think it's really important to find something that you love and, and that really works for you. But I also feel like it's a slippery slope and it, it could, you could be going down a rabbit hole and next thing you know, you, you, you got like 20 horns on a gig and you're like, you play like one note on one and then you switch to another to, you know, get a different sound or, you know, it's just, it's tough. And then when you get lost in, in that, then you're not really finding the meat and bones of whatever instrument you're using. So me personally, I like to stay on something for a while. If I'm going to, if I'm going to test something out, it's going to be like, you know, six months or a year, you know, where I, before I really know like, okay, this is working for me or this isn't working for me. And then when I find something that feels good, I try to stay with it because like I said before, it, you know, the troubleshooting aspect is important. So if your gear is always fluctuating, then it's harder to troubleshoot uh, because you don't have any like uh, uh, baseline foundation to understand where you're, you're at with things. Yeah. Finding something that's efficient for whatever job that you're doing is definitely important. Now, are you uh, are you more of a, a smaller smaller setup guy or a larger setup guy? I like the the large bore horn, um, and I like I like more of an open feel in general. Well, it, it's hard. Like I used to play. Well, I used to play a large board bench, but now I'm playing, I'm, I got this uh, this Yamaha that I got from a buddy of mine, Jean Caz. It's a, it's a Bergeron model Yamaha, but it's been modified uh, with a Charlie Milk lead pipe and, uh, and crook. And, uh, you know, I, I love this one for, for playing lead and for a variety of things. It's, it's been really great for me. Um, so yeah, that's a large bore with a, uh, I, I play the Bergeron uh, Studio GR mouthpiece as well. And that's sort of like a medium small cup. It's got a little bit more resistance uh, and back back pressure through the blow of that. So it's kind of like the, the uh, a tighter mouthpiece with a large uh, horn combo. Yeah. seems to work well for me for now. Yeah, well, I'll check back with you in a few years and see where we're at. So, 
Yeah, it's always interesting to me because, you know, it, it is, it's so personal, you know, and there, there is no, no set in stone answer, but I just like to get people's uh, opinion on it because you never know when you're going to pick up a little bit of uh, a little nugget that, that you might be able to put in. But, you know, like so many guys I know that, that love to have, have that initial resistance kind of like really upfront and then feel like that everything is kind of opening up. And then other people that want it really free and open so then they feel like the resistance is further down the horn. So they're kind of pushing into the horn mm-hmm. and it's, it's really fascinating, you know, and, and I, I'm just a geek that way. So oh, it's, it's, it's so true. And everything, things are so personal. I mean, there's so much that goes into it, like your physiology, your size, your, 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 mouth your neck your you know the way that you the direction of your airflow uh the strength of your lungs you know the strength of your abdomen you know all, all of those types of things are, are factors in the, the your your setup choices and, and what may or may not be a solid setup for you yeah well and also i mean this kind of discussion i think helps people to get um a vocabulary uh, because yeah, you, you play a horn and it's like, well, I just don't like my horn, you know? And it's like, well, what don't you like about it? So, you know, if you, if you are looking to get a new horn or a new mouthpiece, I think the more to understand thing about, uh, the, understand those things, uh, about how you might be able to adjust your setup, you know? So, okay. Before you buy a new horn, maybe try checking the gap on your, you know, your, your mouthpiece insertion maybe try changing the backboard on your mouthpiece it's a heck of a lot cheaper than buying a new horn so you could do some of these small things and then try and dial it in and then you know you you might have solved your problem yeah. or yeah. maybe it, it could be that your your teeth shifted since you got your mouthpiece and mm-hmm. now you need something a little bit different you yeah. know this there's all kinds of things that yeah but but one of the things you did say about like troubleshooting, I think I, I like it. I like that because you know, you're saying that, you know, if you're, if you're trying to deal with issues in your playing, you're going to do your troubleshooting. So you want to keep your gear as consistent as possible through that process. Yeah. Uh, and I, there are a lot of people that when they have a problem, the first thing they do is they change your gear mm-hmm. as opposed to, trying to troubleshoot a mechanical issue, a physiological issue. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know which one's the right or the wrong one, but uh, I, I think that, that I like your approach of, okay, let, let's let's try and troubleshoot it first and then. I, I think that's important. And since I've become more consistent in my approach to practicing, I feel like I've become more consistent in my trumpet playing. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that I practice daily is very similar or the same exercises because I know what to expect from them. I know what the, how they should impact my trumpet playing and, and the results, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that has come from trial and error and, and picking up things here and there and, you know, finding little tidbits that work for me speaking to people about what they do you know yeah yeah and like harry said it goes back to feel a lot of times too you know that's like you when you're doing it consistently then you you know how it should feel you know how it should sound and then you marry those two and then that you know your feel becomes your barometer 
So I dig it. All right, we have one final segment to get through, and this is uh, one of my favorites out of the three. Out of my three favorite segments, this is one of my favorites. Uh, and this is the Robinson's Remedies Rapid Fire Round. It's uh, brought to us by Robinson's Remedies, rapid relief for your sore and tired chops. Uh, it's a series of questions that kind of go all over the place. So uh, are you ready, bro? I hope so. All right, man. Let's let's see how uh, how fast you can respond to these questions. And here's your first one. Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Probably my mother. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite book? Uh, my favorite book. I love Quincy Jones' autobiography. <laughs> That's good. Have you read his new one? You know, I have it, and I, I've started. I, I've started it, but it takes me a while to get through a book. <laughs> yeah, I, I did it on audiobooks and got through it in about a day and a half. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was good. All right. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Oh, the worst movie I've ever seen. I probably didn't watch too much of it. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I don't want to waste your time. I got you. Uh, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? If I wasn't a trumpet player, I don't know what I would do. Uh, uh, maybe something in science, you know, maybe, yeah. Huh? Um, what is your favorite drink? My favorite drink is scotch. I like to drink scotch. Uh, are you a, a single malt or are you a uh, a blend? I like the single malt. Yeah, the uh, the, the, the peatier the better. Ah, uh, okay, we got you. Like Lagavulin, Ardbeg. Yeah, that's my. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just killed a bottle of Ardbeg not too long ago. Oh man, have you checked out the Wee Beastie? They're five year. I have. I have not done the Wee Beastie. Oh, it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, I'll have to give that. Send us some bottles for this ad. <laughs> <laughs> a toast. Yeah, well, you know what? I would be all over that. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, so next question. You are going to have a dinner party, and you can invite any three living people, fan, friends and family don't count, uh, but any three living people in, to come to this dinner party, who would you want to have there? Hmm. Uh... I would like to have Obama. Um, I would like to have, boy, that's a tough question. Three, only three? Only three. <laughs> um, who else would I like to? I mean, I, I would like to have Quincy Jones there too, you know? And uh, who else? Um, boy, I don't know. I don't know. That's a tough one. You got me on the spot here. Yeah, see? Yeah, I don't know. Somebody really awesome. Okay, we'll say we'll <laughs> someone really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's see if this this part of the question is any easier for you. Uh, three additional chairs. Any three people from history? Okay. 
probably Louis Armstrong, Miles Davis. Would like to hear what they have to say, and uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, see, that was a lot easier. Yeah. A lot easier. All right, uh, lacquer plated or raw? Uh, it depends on the sound that I'm going for at the time. I like plated for, uh, I like silver plated for, for overtones and stuff. Uh, but I like raw for warmth. All right. What's your favorite quote? Uh, my favorite quote is uh, to worry about the valleys because the peaks will take care of themselves. Okay. What's your greatest fear? Uh, my greatest fear is fear. <laughs> I have nothing to fear but fear itself. <laughs> um, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Mm. to live a very long time healthily um, okay um, what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most overrated the most overrated aspect of trumpet playing I think is uh, <laughs> is like a uh, 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 really loud high notes. All right. And what aspect do you think is the most underrated? Uh, the most underrated uh, would probably be flexibility. All right. Uh, you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Mm, one piece of advice about music. Uh, I would say uh, try to become as efficient as you can in your practice. Okay. And while you're there, you're going to give your younger self one piece of advice about life. One piece of advice about life is uh, don't fall for all the distractions. All right. And a final question for you. Um, what do you want your legacy to be? Boy, that's a really tough one. Um, I would like my legacy to be one of one that's positive, you know, and uh, I'd like to, to, to leave feeling like I've helped people and I've left something uh, that will stick around uh, in a positive way, uh, whether it be through music or just through influence in life. All right, well. That, my friend, is certainly something that we can all aspire to, you know, just making a difference. So I certainly appreciate uh, your your time with me today and 
Yeah, you've made a difference for me. Uh, you gave me some great ideas, and uh, likewise, I'm I'm hoping uh, that one day soon we'll be able to sit down with uh, that bottle of Ardbeg and uh, yeah, let's do it let's and continue the conversation. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, and so uh, Jemani's got a lot of great stuff going on. So please check out uh, the links in the show notes. Uh, check out his website. Uh, there's links to all kinds of great stuff as his tour schedule. Uh, recordings and uh, all the other projects that he's involved with. So definitely keep your eye on this young man. He's got a lot of stuff going on, a lot to offer, and I'm sure a lot of great stuff to come up in the future. So stay tuned. So uh, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang. As always, uh, ask that you like, subscribe, share, uh, send us a bottle of scotch, whatever you want to do just to keep the show going. And, uh, you know, we appreciate you support live music. And uh, as always, Folks, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.